brought to you by SOCOM Athlete, Cindy. The Trident is the only device that signifies you and identifies you as a SEAL operator. Every day I earn my Trident, no matter where I'm at or what I'm doing, whether it's on the battlefield or on Liberty, I earn my Trident every day. Thanks for tuning in. America's number one resource for special operations preparation. Here with you is host, Jason Sweet. Thanks for tuning in to SOCOM Athletes Podcast. Send me, this is your host, Jason. And today, we have the honor of bringing on Navy SEAL, Eli Crane, who went from being a Navy SEAL starting up a business out of his garage to making it on Shark Tank and millions. Now as both a father and a CEO, Eli is running for Congress. A few quick announcements. Our SOCOM Athlete Shorts, both the Performance Shorts and the Silkies are back in stock. They were sold out for a while. Hell Day season coming up next month. We're back at it in San Clemente, then followed by San Antonio. We have the honor of yet again using the facilities at the Marine Corps' basic reconnaissance course for the Hell Day out in San Clemente, as well as utilizing Lackland Air Force Base for the majority of our Hell Day out in San Antonio. For more information, hop on the SOCOM Athlete website and head on over to the Hell Day subpage. And lastly, a huge shout out to former SOCOM Athlete Hell Day finishers and group chat members Alex and Adam, who just officially graduated Air Force TAC-P training in the same class and earned the coveted Black Berets. The strong shall stand, the weak will fall by the wayside. That is the TAC-P motto. Congratulations, gentlemen. You are now officially Air Force Special Warfare Operators. This is not the start, but it's only the beginning. And now to our featured guest for the day. Thank you so much for coming on to the Send Me podcast. My man, Eli Crane. Where are you talking to us from, Eli? Arizona, which is where you're running from out of District 2, if that's correct. That's correct, Jason. It goes all the way up to the Utah border, comes all the way down New Mexico, comes all the way down south of Phoenix. Um, and it's just this large, large geographical rural district in Arizona. Um, so you've got like Florence to the south of Phoenix in it. You've got um, Prescott, Flagstaff, Payson, the Grand Canyon, Pine Top, Sholo, just a lot of the uh, rural areas of Arizona in, in this district. So it's, it's a, it's a pretty interesting district. It's, it's got beautiful um, geography and scenery in it. And, uh, but it does take uh, a lot of uh, time on the road to cover this district. Payson high school is where I graduated from beautiful town, man. I didn't realize that district two covered Payson. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's awesome, man. And as you know, um, going to school up there, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful country. Um, especially if you live in Arizona, you know, it's always, it seems like it's always a little bit cooler up there. So that's always nice during the summers as well. So Eli after, and, and we'll get to, I'll ask you some questions about your time on the SEAL teams and, and your time at Buds, of course, but uh, can you tell us a little bit more about how you ended up on the Shark Tank, man? I mean, what, what led to that? You started a company and, and then you're at the top of the top, man, with a huge audience. How'd that happen? Yeah. Um, so when, I, when my wife and I, Jen, started our company, you know, we were extremely busy. I was uh, a SEAL instructor at the time. Um, we had two small kids. 
we we had two s- small businesses that we were running out of our house and I was a instructor as well. And so we were just su- stupid busy, but we did allow ourselves to uh, basically take one break, you know, um, regularly. And we usually filled that time with watching the Shark Tank and just hanging out. And so we both believe that uh, if we got an opportunity to get on the Shark Tank with our business, just because it was so unique, um, that we could get a deal. And so the first time I applied for the show, I sent in an email and uh, via their website and did not, um, you know, didn't hear anything back. But then probably a couple months later, I was uh, hanging out with one of my advisors, um, a mentor of mine in Los Angeles. And uh, he was like, Eli, you got it. I told him, I was like, hey, Mike, I really think if we got on this show, it would blow things open for us. And he was like, he just got on his computer, started Googling some stuff. He's like, Eli, he's like, there is a open casting call like a month from now, like right next to your house, like 15 minutes down the road. And I was like, holy cow. And so I was like, okay, sweet. So we started working on, uh, you know, our pitch and our plan to, you know, get there. And, um, you know, when I showed up, they said the first 500 people get a guaranteed opportunity to pitch to a casting member. So, uh, you know, I think they opened it like eight in the morning on like a uh, Saturday morning. I think I got in, got in line at one in the morning. Um, I think I was like number 127 or something like that and uh, got, an, got an opportunity to pitch to a casting member. It was really cool because I didn't even rehearse my pitch. I just knew that we had something amazing. And they only gave you like one minute. But um, one I took- minute, that's got to be hard to like to describe your, your business, your baby in one minute. Yeah. So I figured it was going to be kind of a loose, you know, timeline, but they had so many people there that I figured, all right, if I can just suck this person into what we're doing, they'll give me more than a minute. I think they just do that type of stuff so that they, if they think your idea is ridiculous, they can just be like, okay, time's up. Got to go. Sorry. We got to see the next person. But you know, um, I actually uh, took this really nice cigar box and I had, a bunch, I had several laser engravers at the time and I laser engraved their logo, the shark tank on it. And then my logo bottle breacher on it. And then I had it where I popped open the lid and uh, there was a picture of Clint Eastwood with a friend of mine named Kevin Lace, who uh, was one of the advisors on that movie, American sniper, um, who was also in Delta platoon with uh, at SEAL team three with me and uh, him and Clint Eastwood, on the set of the movie with their bottle breachers and Clint has this big smile on his face. And I told the, I told the young lady, I said, Hey, does Clint Eastwood look like he's pretty happy with that, that bottle breacher? And she's like, yeah, he does. And I'm like, that's right. Because it's awesome. And then I, I, I showed her a bunch of the different, um, the bunch of the different SKUs that we had. And it happened to be like father's day weekend. And I was like, I was like, ma'am, you gotta be honest with me. Do you have like a, like a, a man in your life, your dad, your brother or whatever that would like, you know, a gift like this. It's a big 50 caliber bullet, all decorative, beautiful. It's got his name or happy father's day on the back. And she's like, she's like, my dad and brothers would love this thing. And I was like, then I, then I showed her my phone. I had my Etsy app open, which for those of you that don't know, Etsy is like this artisan eBay um, app where people just sell like their handmade goods and whatnot. 
And uh, I said, would you believe me if I told you we, we did $80,000 of sales in the last uh, month out of a one car garage, about 10 miles, 10 miles down the road. And she's like, no, you have it. And I was like, check it out. I showed her my phone, showed her the uh, revenue, showed her how many sales we've done, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And she was like, wow. She's like, I'm really impressed with what you guys have done. And, and uh, so, you know, that was on a Saturday, Monday morning, I had a uh, email in my inbox. Hey, you're moving on to the next round. Um, you have one week to make a, a video. And so we started working on the video and, you know, they just kept giving us tasks, packets to fill out a bunch of legalese. And we just kept, you know, working through it uh, while we were running the business. And at that time we were getting ready to move our family out of uh, California because I was getting out of the Navy. Uh, so we were getting ready to move the family back to Arizona. And so it was interesting um, within a couple months, Jen and I were hopping on a plane from Tucson and, and flying over to uh, L.A. Sony Picture Studios to pitch to the Sharks. And um, it's kind of wild because when you do that show, you, uh, you know, you can go out there, you can fly out there and not not ever get to pitch to the Sharks. The first day is something called pre-pitch where a bunch of the Shark Tank uh, executives and staff watch your pitch and then they kind of determine whether they think you're going to make good TV or not. And if they don't think you're going to be good, um, they just fly you home. And so thankfully we made it through the first uh, first day. And by that point, keep in mind, you've spent a lot of money and a lot of time just jumping through the hoops, getting all your promotional stuff ready, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, you feel bad for the people that don't get to move on to the next round, but uh, thankfully Jen and I got to move on to the next round. And uh, if you guys have seen the episode, uh, it's season six. It was a Veterans Day episode. Um, Jen and I did get a deal with Mark Cuban and Kevin O'Leary. Turned out to be a total blessing, but uh, I will tell you one of the things you, you see about eight or nine minutes of it. And we were in the tank for about, an, uh, I think, an hour and 20 minutes. So. An hour and 20 minutes is how long you were there in front of them. Yeah, that's how long we were there. They obviously wow. cut, splice it up, edited it up and show you what they think the, you know, the most entertaining parts are. But yeah, it's it's an actual no kidding, like um, pitch uh, back and forth. And, you know, it was kind of cool because, you know, you and I both have a background in special operations. And um, one of the things that I learned in special operations and I don't know if you guys said this, Jason, but we used to say one is none, two is one all the time. And it was just, it was just like, Hey man, don't ever, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't have one point of failure. Don't want, don't have one battery for your radio. Don't have one gun, you know, make sure that all the batter you have extra batteries for your night vision and your GPS and everything else. And just always, always plan for Murphy's law to, kick in anything that can go wrong will go wrong and so one of the one of the things i applied that when going into the shark tank we we didn't want just one investor we wanted to target two of them at least and so um that's exactly what we got and uh you know it turned out to be it turned out to be pretty cool and it turned out to definitely throw us into the deep end right off the bat which can be good and bad i mean uh i i think that it can be very unhealthy for a lot of businesses to grow that quickly. And, you know, I could, go, I could go into that, but 
Um, thankfully for us, it turned out to be a blessing. We were able to, uh, just because of the team that we built, and I think our ability to think outside the box and be, um, you know, flexible and innovative, we were, we were able to survive that lightning quick growth where a lot of companies, you know, can't just because, um, you know, it's really common for us in life, in business, um, to say, well, hey, that's not how we did it yesterday. So, you know, or, or to say that's that's not how we do things around here. Whenever you start facing adversity, you know, this is we we have a certain way of doing things. Well, sometimes your way of doing things, you know, it is no longer applicable. It no longer works for for this problem set that you're dealing with. And so, uh, you know, we were able to be innovative you know, say, Hey, that, that worked yesterday, but it's not going to work anymore. We have to completely redesign production from the, from the ground up so that we can handle, um, you know, this onslaught of business because before we went on shark tank, we were making about a hundred, I think 20 units of bottle breachers on a good day. I think we had five or six employees after the show, the, the morning we woke up after the show aired on television we had a completely broken website because of all the traffic. We had to make 60,000 bottle breachers. Um, and within two weeks, I think we, we, we grew to like 35 employees and it was just, mo- mo- that that's, that's just stupid growth. And obviously that's a, that's the, a lot to handle in a small there, amount of time. There is a lot that comes with it. And I'm grateful that, uh, you know, we, um, I'm, I'm grateful that my wife and I are still married, <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, it was, it was pretty wild. And, uh, I think a lot of it has prepared me for what I'm doing right now. That's incredible. What a story about the process of what it takes to actually get there in front of the sharks on that show. Congratulations, man. That's huge. It really took your business to not just the next level, but, but 10 levels higher. Right. Um, yeah. Eli, can you tell us a little bit about what bottle breacher is and what, what your product is? Yeah. So, um, it started with a 50 cal bottle opener. And then, uh, it was interesting as we started adding products to our lineup, you know, and, and this is something for your listeners out there. There's always going to be haters. There's always going to be people that try and keep you in, in a little box in life. And I remember we started, you know, uh, expanding our product line and people were like, whoa, 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 whoa. You, You can't, you can't just, you know, start adding products, you know, you guys are the 50 cal bottle opener guys. And I remember reading messages like that in email and social media. It's just interesting to me how, you know, all the time in your, throughout your life, people will try and keep you in a little box. Um, and, uh, you, you'll always have haters, but you just gotta, you gotta do what you know, what you know is right. And, you know, keep, uh, you know, keep doing what you're doing. And, um, so we, we expanded the product line. Now we, you know, we have, uh, a bunch of other, a bunch of other gifts. That's really what Bottle Preacher is. It's, we, uh, we do a bunch of amazing man gifts that are personalizable. And, uh, like we have a product called the Freedom Frag. It's a grenade, um, that opens your beer. We have whiskey bullets, you know, uh, koozies, coasters, you know, all sorts of, you know, cool, cool gifts, typically for guys, but some girls like them and you can, you know, personalize all of them. So it's just a, it's just a really, really cool little business. And the thing, one of the things I'm most proud of is that um, we have employed a lot of veterans over the years. We still do. And, um, you know, and more important, 
more importantly, even that to me, we've, we've kept our manufacturing in the USA. And I think that that's something I'm really proud of because it, you don't realize how challenging that is until, until you actually do it. You know, one of the most intriguing parts I heard of your story, correct me if I'm wrong, but you started the business while you were active duty in the Navy. That's correct. Yeah. So um, I was uh, an, an instructor at a trade at group one um, down in Coronado. So um, those are, those are seals that instruct other seals. There's, there's like two types of seal instructors. There's uh, seal instructors that teach the students and instruct the students. And then there's seal instructors that uh, work with actual seals, teaching them, uh, you know, a mission set and putting them through training. And that's, that's the one I was doing. I was working with uh trade at MarOps and that's like maritime operations, anything that has to do with the water, whether it's, uh, um, you know, over the beach or OTB as we call it, um, you know, go plats, uh, teaching seals how to take down gas oil platforms or, uh, VBSS visit board search and seize, you know, all of that, all of that stuff is the cell that I was working in. And, uh, before I got out, I was for, uh, short period of time, I was the LPO, the leading petty officer of uh, VBSS. And so that was really cool because it, 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 out of everything I did in the SEAL teams, it prepared me more, you know, to run a business than anything I had done up to that point. Um, just because there were so many, um, there were so many things that you had to account for. There was, it was a logistical nightmare. You had to, you know, uh, you had to schedule ships and naval vessels and merchant vessels and role players and swick, you know, small, fast craft helicopter squadrons. I mean, it was, it was crazy how many things that you had to, you know, schedule and all have all of these things working in concert at the same time. And then the other cool thing too, was uh, in, when anytime you're working with that many assets um, that many different departments, um, understanding how look, we talked about Murphy's law a couple seconds ago and contingency planning, you know, it was, it really, it really taught me to control what I could control, but have a backup and a contingency for when things didn't go how I wanted them to go or how we were hoping that they would go. And so, and that stuff happens in business all the time, happens in life all the time, but, um, most of us are taught to, you know, Hey, make a plan. And then we get so married to our plan that when things go sideways, we, we have no idea what to do. We haven't thought about, okay, what's plan B what's plan C what happens if we go to hit this target and, and the, and the bad guy's not at this target, what are we going to do? What happens if we're on our way to target and, you know, vehicle one or Victor one gets blown up. Do we have a bump plan? Do the, do the guys in Victor one know what truck that they're going to go to? And it's, it's the same. And it's the same in business. Hey, what happens what happens if, uh, you know, this machine, you know, this or this production line goes down? Do we can we flex to something else? Do we have another production line that we can set up really quickly? And so it was really cool going, you know, being the LPO of that cell because it just taught me um, how to contingency plan and uh, how to control what I could control and, and uh, you know, be flexible for when things went sideways. Yeah, it's funny you brought that up because the communication 
and the scheduling and lining up all the logistics, um, having the risk management process, um, getting all the paperwork out to your guys, making sure that you have the right individual equipment, team equipment, all of that. It, like you said, it prepares you to actually run an organization because you're essentially running an organization, you're running a, a training organization. So in your case, you had to organize, um, you had to organize the same place, same time with different vessels that you needed. But then you also had to have boat guys that were in the water for safety factors and all the team gear, make sure everything's done at the right place, right time, set you up for success in business. One thing that was pretty wild, you know, even this short time that I did as a non-commissioned officer, what was pretty wild to me is how we didn't really get trained to do all that stuff. They're just like, hey, man, here's what you got to do. Go do it. <laughs> I, better, I guess I better figure this out. Start calling people, right? Right. So you kind of figure it out on the go, but no, that's awesome. That's really what prepared you to do it. So you just started the, you started the company and, and things started rolling. Is, is that kind of how, how it, how it happened? Yeah. You know, um, one of the lessons that I took from uh, the SEAL teams was uh, we, we used to say all the time, uh, crawl, walk, run. I'll repeat that crawl, walk, run. And it's basically um, like, you know, you see the cool high speed commercials where, you know, guys are, you know, on, on a fast boat and they, they, they're, they're cruising over the water and then you'll see them come and ramp up at night onto a larger boat and they, they throw off the bow lines and everybody gets in or wh- whatever they're doing, they're diving at night. You know, when you look at, when you break down, you know, a lot of special operations training, if you watch what happens on day one, it's always done in the daylight and usually it's done slick or with that, without, without all the gear. Right. And you're just kind of going through, you're kind of walking through the, the motions and that's the crawl phase. And then, you know, then you start adding some speed to it, you know um, you know, that that's what we call, we call obviously, you know, walking. And then by the time you're, you know, by the time you get through and you're just incrementally add, adding a little bit more of uh the realism, the gear, the danger factor, the synchronization, more bodies, you know, more problems, more challenges. Um, and by the time you get to the end of this two week or four week block of training, I mean, you'll be, you'll be, ha- you'll be doing a half, a helo assault, um, bath, boat assault force, you know, hitting a ship at the same time, you've got guys fast roping onto the deck and then other guys, another another unit, um, you know, climbing up the side of the ship on ladders at night while the ship's moving um, with live breach scenes, you know, dogs, role players, um, you know, and it's, it's, it's kind of madness, but the, the point is, is that it's the way we train. It's all about, it's all about um, that crawl, walk, run, allowing guys to take it in small digestible bites to where when, when it's actually go time, you know, they've had the opportunity to uh, work their way up to what the, the performance standard that they're going to need to be operating at to execute the mission. And so when, I, when we started Bottle Breacher, I kind of tried to apply the same mentality where, you know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't buy like a hundred thousand units of, you know, brass when we started this thing off, I bought 10, I bought 10 pieces of brass online. And I was like, okay, let's see if I can do anything with these. That's the crawl. That's the crawl phase. And and it didn't cost me a lot of money either. You know? And I was like, 
I didn't buy any, I didn't buy any machinery either. Like I actually went into my garage. I was like, yeah, I've got a Dremel tool and I've got a, a workbench over there and I got a vice. And so let me, let me put one of these 50 cal pieces of brass in, in my vice and see if I can cut it into something that will open a bottle. Cause I didn't come up with that idea. Um, my, my younger brother is uh, he was a helo pilot in the Marine Corps. And he, he brought one home from the Philippines for me. And so uh, I was just like, man, that's really cool. But I wonder if I can make it better. So I started messing around with it, cutting into brass with a Dremel tool. And it took me a couple of weeks to get to the point where I could actually, uh, uh, I actually had a small production line, you know, down. But, you know, like I was saying, I applied that crawl, walk, run mentality to entrepreneurship. And I made, you know, I made 10 of them. And then I, then I, you know, tested it. I want to see if I could sell them. I, you know, I cut into them. I grinded them down, you know, then I polished them up or I spray painted them and I put a sticker on them. And then I went and asked my wife, I was like, Hey, you think you can help me sell these online? And she was like, yeah, maybe, you know, so she did some research and, uh, she was like, you know, Etsy might be a good spot. And I was like, Etsy, what, what the hell is Etsy? And uh, she was like, no, trust me, this is women will buy these for their guys if they think they're cool enough. And so, she listed them on Etsy and, you know, within a couple of weeks, um, you know, we had our first sale and we just kept, you know, modifying and tweaking the product and even the, uh, the price of it. And, and we figured out what, what was working, what wasn't working. And, you know, then we moved from the crawl phase to the walk phase. And instead of buying 10, I bought 20. And at the same, you know, while you're doing this, while you're doing this in entrepreneurship or whatever you're doing, even in, even in the workouts that you, you know, that, that you're doing, you know, it's like, you don't want to, you don't want to jump in and, you know, do some four hour workout right off the bat where you're carrying a, you know, a 75 pound ruck, man, you got to work your way up to that stuff. And, um, and that's, that's what we did in bottle breacher, you know, uh, to get where we were just by taking a lot of those lessons that I learned in special operations and applying them to business. Wow, that's something else. Uh, in my opinion, I feel that more special operators, when they get out, should attempt to start their own business. You know, even if it's just something a little bit smaller, doing what they love to do. What would be your advice to operators as they're looking to get out that that maybe are interested in starting a business? Yeah, so there. I would say I've got a couple pieces of advice. One of the biggest ones is uh, um, build a team like that. So much of uh, this, it's one of the biggest, it's one of the biggest mistakes I see a lot of guys make, um, you know, because, uh, and a lot of it has to do with control. A lot of it has to do with not wanting uh, to turn anything over because nobody's ever going to care about your business or your product or your service as much as you do. So when guys try to hand it over and they see somebody do it, not exactly as, you know, as good as they do, you know, um, they're just like, ah, it's just a waste of time. I'm just going to do all this stuff myself. And so what happens as an entrepreneur is when you've got all these different um, hats that you have to wear from, you know, marketing uh, to production um, to, you know, PR or social media or what, whatever it is to bookkeeping, accounting, all of this different stuff, building out the website, sales. Um, if you try and wear all those hats, you're not going to, you're not going to do anything well. And so the quicker you can build out your team of solid people, um, that's really so much of that. It's going to hinge on, 
your success is going to hinge on whether or not you're able to do that. And it's, it's interesting, again, going back to special operations, it's just like special operations. You're not, you know, I, I remember what, listening to my SEAL instructors, uh, they were always like day one, week one, like, you know, uh, if you and I were swim buddies, dude, uh, Jason, like we were, we were on the SEAL compound. If you were like, Hey man, I got to go use the restroom. Well, then I'd have to go with you. I'd have to go with you to the restroom, man. I, and if, if you got caught in the restroom and I was more than six feet from you, we would, you and I would get beat down right there in the restroom. And then they'd probably, they'd probably be like, Hey, Jason, what boat crew are you in? You'd be like, Oh, I'm in boat crew four. And they'd be like, go get boat crew four. And so you go get boat crew four. And then guess what? Boat crew four now gets beat in the restroom, they might even beat the whole class if they're pissed off enough. And they might even have me and you stand up in front of them and just watch as our buddies get beat down with the lesson that, Oh, Hey, Eli and Jason, they think they're Rambos. They don't, they don't need a swim buddy. Um, so you guys are going to pay for it because that's what would happen in, in, on the battlefield. If Eli and Jason go out by themselves, you know, don't work with the team you know, they're going to get into trouble and then you guys are going to have to go bail them out. It's probably going to cost some of you your lives. And so that's what they try and teach you from the, Hey, Hey, the movies are great and cool, but that's nonsense. It doesn't work that way. Uh, We work as teams out, you know, and very close tight knit teams on the, on the battlefield. And so I noticed that in business too. It's like, if you're not able to, you know, build that team, if you think you're going to, you know, if you think that you're going to go do it all by yourself, you're not, you're going to, you're, like I said, you're going to, um, you're, you're, you're going to, you're going to suck at, at every single one of those things, or you're going to focus all your energy at like production or, you know, uh, design. And then everything else is going to fall by the wayside, your accounting, your, your bookkeeping, um, marketing sales, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so you got to build that, you got to build that team out. And then um, on that same on that same note, another mistake I see a lot of entrepreneurs make is that um, uh, they don't understand that um, most, a lot of entrepreneurs end, end up owning a hundred percent of nothing, right? So if, if you're able to, um, part of your team might be an investor, right? Um, and so if you're able to bring somebody in that can help you with capital, but you have to, you know, dilute your, dilute your company a little bit and, Uh, give them, you know, maybe 10% of the company or 15 or 20% of the company. Um, It does complicate things in many ways. And I'm I'm not going to say, hey, don't be wise about who you bring on as investors, because I think you you have to be very, very wise. But if you end up one day owning 15% of something, that's worth more than owning 100% of nothing. And so as you go through, uh, as you go through this stuff, so much of it is gonna, not just going to be about the, the product or the service that you're offering, but the structure and the team that you build around it. Um, and so that, that's, that's massively important too. And then just like in, just like in um, the same mindset that it takes to become a special operator um, in entrepreneurship, one of the things I've noticed, the most successful people that I know in my life, they don't see um, they don't see failure as a stop sign, right? They see it as a detour. Oh, it's just a detour sign. Okay, that that way didn't work. That doesn't mean I can't get where I want to go. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna find another way around. And so, 
developing that that mindset of hey failures you know robert kiyosaki i think from rich dad poor dad says hey fail faster fail faster because you know the winners that i know in life they understand it's just it's a part of the it's a part of how this works it's part of the process failure is a part of the process you know get good at over you know just failing overcoming it and realizing okay it didn't work that way now how am i what what changes am i going to make so that i can take another swing at this and so one of the one of the biggest mistakes that you can make is to fail and then to say oh okay i guess i guess this isn't for me i'm going to give up and i think that's unfortunately what a lot of a lot of folks do but if you talk to a lot of successful entrepreneurs they'll they'll be able to give you uh examples and a history they'll be able to list out how many businesses or ventures that they 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 got involved in that didn't didn't work out but and they're on their third or fourth or fifth um attempt and now and now they're crushing it but it took all those different that road of line littered with failure for them to learn all the lessons build those relationships figured out who you know who they could add to their team, who they needed to jettison off their team to get where they want to go. And so that, that winning mindset is important as well. That's great wisdom, Eli. And you brought up the team aspect and, and having your swim buddy with you. Can we rewind and hear a little bit about your experience at Buds? I see you have your helmets back there. Can you tell our listeners about the helmets and how they can add such a, a nuisance to the course for those of y'all that are going through Buds? Yeah, so we've got a. Uh, I've got my my helmets uh, in the background. Uh, it was uh, class two five six was the class I made it through with. Um, class two four two was my first buzz class. I didn't make it through with that class. I made it through Hell Week with that class, but um, got performance dropped and sent out to the fleet for two and a half years. Um, but those those helmet they're they're pretty cool because the uh, the green helmet is first phase. And uh, that's where they get rid of most of the people in SEAL training. It's a two-month, it's a two-month block of training. And you can see two chevrons on my helmet. So that meant when I went through with that class, I was a uh, second class petty officer or an E5. Um, and then so you go from the green helmet to the blue helmet, which is dive phase, which is also a two-month block of training. And then from there you go to the red helmet, which is a third phase, and that's weapons, uh, demolitions, and small unit tactics. And, you know, none of the stuff that they teach you in, in BUDS or basic underwater demolition uh, SEAL school is really that high speed or complicated. Um, what they're really learning, what they're really trying to figure out about you is can you work, um, can you work in a group? Can you, can you put others before yourself? Are you extremely mentally tough? Um, and, and do we, are, are you somebody that we'd like to work with you in the future when we actually um, go to war and go into battle? And so, um, you know, the interesting thing about those helmets is they, uh, you know, you have to, you have to prepare them yourselves, or you, at least you did back then. I don't know if you do anymore. Um, but it, it took, you, you had to spend a ton of time just preparing that helmet. I mean, guys would spend, you know, easily, you know, six, seven, eight hours of their weekend working on just their helmet. And then you had to work on your uniform 
and then you had to clean your room. And so even when you weren't getting the, you know, the snot kicked out of you during the, uh, during the work week, um, the training week, you were working on the weekends. You were trying to get a little bit of, trying to get a little bit of sleep, um, you know, trying to run some of the errands that you had to take care of in your personal life. And then you were, the rest of it was spent sharpening your knife, making sure your UDT life jacket was pristine and inspection ready. Your uniforms were inspection ready. Your helmets were inspection ready. And the whole point was, is they were like, Hey man, I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to put you in charge of a million dollar RWS remote weapon system, 50 cal, um, on top of an RG 33 and, and all this other equipment and gear, if you can't even maintain your helmet. And so, you know, that, those are, that's the crawl walk run that I keep talking about, but it's, it's just really cool when I look back at how they, how they train the next generation of warfighters. They don't really need a lot of high speed equipment. They use a bu- some sand, some logs on the O course some telephone poles to do PT with the Pacific ocean, you know, um, some ropes, some pull-up bars and, uh, and, and the, the system does a great job of uh, weeding out individuals that, that don't belong there. And so, you know, those helmets are just a good reminder for me of, you know, where I've come from. And, uh, you know, we have a saying in the seal ethos, it says uh, common man with an uncommon desire to succeed. And I like to remember that because I know I'm a common man. You know, I never want to get, I want to keep, you know, my pride in check and I want to keep humility um, center stage in my life. Um, But I also want to, you know, never forget where I've come from and the lessons that I've learned and and the guys that I, I was blessed and fortunate to work with. Eli, we have a lot of guys that are listening to this podcast episode right now that are either at Bud's Prep out in Coronado or have a SEAL contract and are going to be shipping out into the Navy soon, or or perhaps um, some of them are at Bud's now. Um, What would be maybe one or or two key pieces of advice that you would give to them before they start the course? Yeah. Um, So, it, 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 it just so much of it boils down to mindset. Um, one of the things that I would challenge each and every young man that is getting ready to go is really watch yourself, watch yourself when you start getting tired, you know, don't, you know, you kind of go through the motions at the beginning of like your workouts and your swims and your runs and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, really watch yourself, start really to tune in, you know, when, when it's one in the morning and you're cold, you're tired. You guys might not, I don't, I don't know what they're doing in prep. I don't know how hard they're pushing you, but um, it's not the swim that you're going to have. It's not the swim that you're going to have a tough time with. Generally, every one of us has like a, you know, an Achilles heel or like a weakness. Um, But what really gets, I think what really gets individuals, is the accumulative effect um, and, and the, you know, just the day in, day out grind. And our, one of the things that we do that really screws us mentally 
is we try and eat that elephant in one bite. And we don't do a good enough job breaking that elephant down into small digestible bites. And so, like I said, really watch yourself when you start to get tired, because that's when you kind of find out, you know, how mature you really are. Okay. You can be a badass runner. You can, I mean, you can be a CrossFit legend. I mean, you can, you can be an Olympic swimmer. I mean, you can be just a freak athlete, but if you're not, if you're not used to, or if you're not good at not only performing, but putting your brother before yourself, when you're cold, tired, and miserable, that's when it's going to, that's what, that's what a lot of the instructors are watching for. You know, how does, you know, how does Billy do when uh, he's been getting, you know, his ass kicked all day long and it's one in the morning and he has an opportunity to kind of slink off and, you know, do his own thing and work on his own gear. Or, you know, is he working on the unit gear? Is he working on the boat crew gear or is he working on his own gear? And so really watch yourself when you start to get tired, because when you start to get tired, and pissed off and frustrated and miserable, the natural human response is, is to, uh, you know, get back in your comfort zone, take care of yourself. Right. Um, and it's the, the last thing you want to do is take extra weight off of your buddy and take an extra collateral duty or go do an extra chore that you don't necessarily have to do. And that was one thing that that was one of the biggest reasons I got canned on my first try was because, it wasn't like, it wasn't like I was a bad guy. I was, a, I was a good dude. I would have given you lunch money. If you needed a ride, I would have given you a ride. If you needed hell, I would have showed up and helped you move your furniture, but it's a whole nother ball game, man. When you've been awake for four days and you're, you know, you're, 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 high, you're practically hypothermic and you, you know, you've been running with a, you know, 35 pound boat on your head for a hundred miles. I mean, it's, it's a whole nother game. And so I would say really watch yourself as you're training and preparing, watch, watch your behavior and your attitude when you get tired. And that's when you really need to really start tweaking some things and asking yourself, Hey, when I get, when I get tired and cranky and miserable, am I still able to go the extra mile for my brother? Because I really wasn't at that point when, when I got that miserable, man, it was like, it was all about self-preservation. And that'll be one of the things that gets you in a heartbeat. And the instructors will see that all over you. Um, your peer evals will, rec you know, uh, your peer evals will uh, illuminate that because guys, guys will know, guys will know who the, and, and that's why we call ourselves team guys. And I didn't really get it. You know, I thought it was, I thought it was cool and everything, but you really find out who a team guy is. Like I said, not, not when uh, it's Friday afternoon at, you know, 4 p.m. and we're getting off work and, you know, the weekends, you know, right there and the girls are looking pretty down in Coronado. That's not when you find out who a team guy is, man. You find out who a team guy is at 0330 on a Monday morning when it's cold, the wind is whipping, you got a four mile time run and somebody needs, you know, you know, somebody forgot their, their, you know, somebody forgot their knife. You know, do you have an extra one? Will you go, will you run to your car real quick and get it for them? Or are you just worried about yourself? And so that's, those are some of the things that I, I would suggest that guys really take a hard look at is how you respond when you're cold, tired, wet, and miserable, what your behavior's like and uh, start to tweak it towards being selfless 
and a team guy and brotherhood and less on the self-preservation. And then the, the other thing is eat that continually break that massive elephant of the, you know, the year and a half pipeline that you're looking at down into small digestible bites. And, and, and that will serve you well, regardless of what you do on the backside. Um, even if, even if you don't make it, um, you know, it's like, uh, if you can learn to break the hard things down in your life and always be doing that because we're so, it's so easy to get overwhelmed and not just in, not just in your, the pipeline that you're working on, but you know, with like, a, I'm, I'm running a congressional campaign right now. It's a year and a half and it's, it, it, it's brutal in many ways itself. And I have to do the same thing right now. So those are two pieces of advice I would give uh, the next generation looking to succeed. That's great wisdom, Eli. One more question for you. Going through our, our PJ selection course, which was called Pararescue Indoctrination at the time, one of the most challenging parts of the course was when we had these devious instructors that were constantly going off script and just pounding us and just constantly messing with our minds or constantly adding more obstacles. Um, but it was also something that allowed us to kind of come together as a team and and go against the instructors, develop some some humor within our own team and and kind of get through this with a little bit of twisted humor. Do you have any any stories or, or any funny stories from buds um that come to mind? Oh man. Um yeah I mean there was there were so there were so many funny stories, man. But I remember one time when you're talking about devious instructors, I I we were doing a, we called it a PIBI, like a personnel inspection, room inspection or whatever. And uh, I remember one, one morning they, they came in, we were standing, standing out there in our dress green uniforms, you know, that we'd been working on all weekend and clean had cleaned our room all weekend. And uh, you spend a lot of time in it. And this, these instructors roll into our room and start like, you know, wiping down window sills and looking, you know, for dust and, you know, see how well of a job you did cleaning your room. And one of them goes in the bathroom and it was hilarious. He, he shut the door and I was like, what's he doing in there? And he, you know, he, uh, he, he took a shit in the toilet and then he came out and, uh, he told the, <laughs> the recorder, he's like, Hey, um, the, the recorder was writing down all the, all the uh, discrepancies and he's like, Hey, there's shit in the toilet. So <laughs> he took a shit in the toilet and then he, and then, uh, and then hit us for having shit in the toilet. It was just, it was just funny, but you know, it was like, it was cool because these guys, you know, they're trying to teach you that life isn't fair. Warfare isn't fair. You know, it's like, get used to things not being fair. And, uh, you know, I thought that was pretty, I thought that was pretty funny that he did that, but it, it's so true. You know, it, it, it just gets you used to dealing with, Hey, that's not fair. Don't cry about it. Don't whine about it. Nobody cares in the SEAL teams, you know, just, uh, get over it and, uh, you know, get, get, get back to doing what you're supposed to be doing. And you ended up being on the West coast on SEAL team three. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, that was really cool. Um, I was pretty fortunate, uh, me and a couple guys from my class, uh, we graduated and immediately went to war. So we were a couple of the lucky guys, um, 
so we graduated we graduated in oh late oh five i believe and then in oh six immediately after going through seer school me and like four or five other guys went um, downrange and uh we got put into bravo platoon uh we, we were in Havania on that deployment then we came back a couple several of us got thrown into chris kyle's platoon uh which was delta platoon at the time um so did that for two years and uh, chris hated new guys so that was a really fun experience but um you know definitely toughened us up a little bit and um so that that deployment we were all over the place we uh we started in Al Qaim on the Syrian Iraqi border, and then uh, we just went all over the place, man. Um, you know, you know, doing whatever whatever they needed us to do. And then the my very came back and then did my final deployment uh, with also with Delta Platoon, and that deployment was in Fallujah. So did that, and then uh, I actually reenlisted for four years. And this is a piece of advice that I'd, I'd give because it's not just, you know, it's not just about getting into the SEAL teams, but especially a lot of us have families in the SEAL teams. And then, OK, you got to exit as well. And uh, so many guys struggle on their exit, you know, for so many different reasons. But um, I actually gave myself I reenlisted for four years knowing that I was going to get out. And I wanted that four years. Um, I wanted that time to figure out what was the next step. And uh, started a couple businesses during that time. Um, like I said, the first one uh, loved it, loved the guys. They're still doing it, um, but it, it wasn't going to work out on my timeline. And so we ended up starting Bottle Breacher as well. And so, you know, uh, I highly recommend uh, for guys, you know, uh, as they're exiting, trying to give themselves enough time. Um, to make the preparations and planning necessary to take care of your family on the back end of things. Eli, what was your favorite capability as a SEAL? You know, like as a PJ, one of my favorite things was whenever we would uh, do T-ducks. So we would toss a, um, an inflatable rubber boat that was all packaged up into a diaper, parachutes uh, out of the back of the plane, do a free fall jump into it. So we go from the, the air to the sea and we had uh, a craft in the water. So that was one of my favorite things to do as a PJ. Uh, what, what were some of your, your most favorite capabilities uh, as a SEAL? Um, you know, I've always, I've always been fascinated with, uh, I've always been fascinated with, uh, snipers. I became a sniper myself. I just think it's fascinating what, you know, some of these, uh, modern rifles are capable of doing, um, you know, at, at distance. So that, that's always been fascinating to me. And then also, uh, you know, the, you know, the DA, the direct action, um, style missions. I, I think those are probably what a lot of SEALs would say are kind of our bread and butter. So um, just overwhelming a target, you know, with violence of action and, you know, stacking, stacking the deck so hard in your favor that, you know, the individuals that you're going after to capture or kill know that um, this is either going one of two ways. You're either, you're either going to fight back and die, or you're going to, um, you're, you're going to get, you're going to get captured and maybe live another day, but probably spend some time in, in prison. And so, um, you know, that, you know, the DA, it, it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool capability. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really cool to see all the different jobs, all the different responsibilities 
um, and how everybody has to work in unison to basically break into, you know, a, a neighborhood, a compound, a residence, you know, a, a business, a warehouse, whatever, whatever the target is uh, using your breachers and, um, and then clearing, you know, clearing the house um, and, and accomplishing the mission. So, you know, I think that that's probably, that that's probably one of my favorite capabilities right there. That's great, Eli. Um, when did you actually get out of the Navy? So I got out in 2014. Um, and it was kind of interesting because for me, I got out, I want to say I got out in October, October of 2014. And then our Shark Tank episode aired like the month later in no, in November. So like, it was just like, one right after the other for me. And so there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of downtime for me. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of time to clear my head. It's probably, probably a good thing in many ways, but, um, you know, it was, uh, it, it was, it was kind of cool to just go from in, in, in a way it was cool to go from me from one thing that I was really passionate about it could sink my teeth into, into something else that I found really challenging and exciting at the same time. Um, you know, I'm one thing that, um, one thing that I'm big on Jason and, uh, is, is my faith. I, I like to talk about, I like to talk about my faith because it's, it's the most important thing in the world to me. But, um, this is one the piece of advice just based on the audience that you have is I, I do want to say to, to the, the young men out there, John Eldridge writes, writes a book called uh, wild at heart. And he says that the number one question that every young man has, and even middle-aged and older men have is, do I have what it takes? A lot of you guys want to go through these pipelines and become special operators to answer that question. And there's nowhere else in the world where you can get that validation like you can really in the in a worldly sense than in, in special operations because they're the toughest programs out there. They have the highest attrition rates, et cetera, et cetera. And, but, you know, it's like um, I just want to challenge the young guys out there to realize that, hey, if you don't make it through your program, it's not the end of the world. And um, I'd also be very careful about, putting my identity in any job as cool as it is, whether it's the SEAL teams or not. Um, because when, when you give something the ability to validate you, you give that same thing the ability to invalidate you. And so if I've seen a lot of guys not make it through these programs and then they, they think the rest of their life is over or that they're, they're worthless. And be very careful with that. Because it is a job and that this job, the SEAL teams, recon, MARSOC, PJs, Rangers, Delta, that's not your identity. And if you ever tie your identity, if you're ever foolish enough to tie your identity up um, into a job, you're, you're going you're gonna to pay the man for that one way or another. Because one day that train, that train is going to stop. It's going to come to it. Even if you have a 25 year career and you're a Navy SEAL master chief or whatever, whatever it is, and you had the most successful career in the world, one of these days, it's going to be over 
And if you, if that's what your identity is, you're not going to, you're going to struggle to move on from it. So just be very careful about what you attach your identity to. Um, you know, for me, that's where my faith comes in. Um, but, but anyway, I just want to throw that out there because I've watched so many guys struggle with that, not only as operators exiting the military, but as young men that don't make it through their pipeline and, um, you, you're not your job. You're not your job. So take that for what it's worth. And you, you brought up your faith, Eli. Um, the title of this podcast is Send Me, You're based on the verse Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And it also says in the Bible that God will never give us more than we can handle. And some folks can't handle these types of jobs, A, and some folks, B, don't, they're just not necessarily cut out for them. So I really like how you, you put that, that point of don't establish your identity in special operations. You, you will get a title, no doubt. You get a trident, you get a maroon beret, you get a tan beret. It's, there's, the title is there. There is some, somewhat of a, a sense of identity. But your purpose and your ultimate identity comes through uh, for you and me, Eli, our faith in God. And then everything else spawns off of that. 100%. 100%. And that's something that I think, you know, I I wish, I wish was, you know, I wish was mainstream. I wish that guys understood that because, you know, the thing is, too, it's like you've got a lot of young men listening to the show and and they they've built this up and they put it on a pedestal and it's cool. Like it's cool. I'm proud of it. And I know you are too, Jason. Um, but at the end of the day, you're going to get there and you're going to realize you're not Jason Bourne. You're not that that's a movie, man. Like I said, in the seal ethos, I'm a common man with an uncommon desire to succeed. That's really what you are. You're not John Rambo, you know? And it's like, one of the things I've noticed is it's like, it's, it's always, we're always like pursuing that next thing. And there's a, I think he was a theologian or an author a long time ago named Blaise Pascal. And he said, basically, and I'm going to paraphrase what he said, but he said, we spend the entirety of our lives trying to fill a God-sized hole in our heart with everything under the sun. And so, you know, it might be, it might be sex, drugs, and rock and roll that you're trying to fill that God-sized hole in your heart with. It might be, yeah, a mil- you know, becoming a millionaire, it might be, be you know, uh, becoming a, a Navy SEAL or a PJ or, you know, Army Special Forces or whatever it is. And I got bad news for you. You're not, you're not going to fill it with any one of those things. And so, um, and, and Jason, I hope you understand, man, like I, I respect everybody's faith, uh, whatever, whatever you believe, whether you're an atheist or whatever, but I'm not... I, I might only have another who I might only have another 30 minutes on this earth, man. I'm God may give me another 40 years. I don't know what, I don't know how, how long I have, but I do know this. Uh, I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to point people, especially young men towards the only thing that I've ever known to be consistent um, and foundational. Something that has never, ever, ever let me down because all the rest of it, man, it will it will constantly let you down. And if that's what you if that's what you chase, and if that's what you try and fill that God sized hole in your heart with, like if that's what you try and um, attach your identity to, it will consistently let you down. And uh, th- there's a reason I know 
a ton of team guys that have led amazing careers that are now, you know, addicts or alcoholics or have killed themselves because um, for, for a lot of reasons, but one, you know, one of them was identity and an identity issue and trying to fill that God sized hole in their heart with something to numb the pain or something that, you know, um, that wasn't getting the job done. And so that's why I talk about it, man. It's not because, Oh, I'm holier than thou, or I want to thump a Bible at you. It's because I've seen, I've seen the destruction. You know, there's a verse in John 10, 10 that says the thief has come to steal, kill and destroy. I've seen a lot of stealing, killing and destroying from my brothers and from guys I love and from their families. And I'm tired of seeing it, man. And I'm just, and I'm also tired of watching my brothers looking in the wrong places, you know, for, for solutions and for fulfillment and for, and for identity. And so that's why I talk about it, man. It's not to stir people up or to rile, rile people up or to puff my chest or to pound my chest. It's just because it's actually out of love, man. So. Well said, what you do does not define who you are. Eli, you are running for Congress, my man. I mean, in my point of view, that sounds like a duty of duties. It does not sound fun. It sounds like an honor, but it sounds like a heck of a challenge. Can you tell us a little bit about what your day-to-day is like right now and, and kind of what's on the horizon for you with this? Yeah, you know, it's you're right. It's not fun. I don't really care for it um, for so many reasons, but it is what it is. It's a very, it's a very important job. And at the end of the day, this is what I think we, we need to remember. Um, there, there's a reason that the young men that listen to your show, you know, outside of just wanting to answer that question, do I have what it takes, but they also want to serve something bigger and greater than themselves. This is really no different. It's just in a political, um, in a political sense. And it, it comes with, a, a, it's a new battlefield, a new set of dangers. Um, and you just have to try and learn to navigate that, that battlefield, figure out what the enemy's TTPs, SOPs are, who you can work with, who you can't work with, um, and, and so on and so forth. And, and also breaking it down into small digestible chunks, like we talked about, you know, uh, going through buds or whatever programs these guys are going to be going through. I, I have to do the same thing now, but we're running in uh, Arizona Congressional District 2, which is being held right now by a, a guy named Tom O'Halloran. And so we're trying to unseat him. We're trying to basically take away, be, take away one seat from Nancy Pelosi so she no longer has a majority on Capitol Hill. And I'm honestly doing it just because at the end of the day, I love this country, man. Um, I, I believe that most empires, most kingdoms, um, especially the strong, the strongest, um, of them usually implode from within. I believe that that's what we're seeing happen in, uh, in this country right now. You and I swore an oath to protect our country and our constitution from foreign and domestic threats. And I think the biggest threat to this country though we have many foreign threats. I think the biggest threat is right here within. And so I'm trying to do something about it. Um, this is another decision I've prayed a lot about and, you know, I've asked, you know, in prayer, Lord, how do you want me to use 
my days? How do you want me to use the skills, talents, and abilities that you've given me? And this is where I feel like he's got me right now in my life. And, you know, I'm grateful to have um, an amazing wife that, you know, supports, supports me in this and is just always been rock solid, uh, takes great care of our kids so that I can be traveling all over the place and, you know, doing all this stuff that I really, <laughs> really don't care to be doing. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, I, you know, I joined the Navy the week, the week after 9-11. To me, this, I feel the exact same way. I feel like, hey, man, um, send, like your podcast is called Send Me. Hey, I, I'm not perfect over here. Uh, far from perfect. A lot of weaknesses. Tons of things that I don't know. But I will take the same dedication, the same resiliency, the same humbleness, the same love. Um, and, and I will take that into this next uh, arena of service if the people decide to send me and if they don't that's okay too um, but it, it's it's that it's that warrior's heart that i think god has instilled in each and every man for a reason why because we're born into a world at war i mean look around you man I look at the wars going on all over the globe right now um i mean <clears throat> we've got more uh the United States of America is the biggest consumer of sex trafficking in the globe. I mean, it's like got people are being taken out left and right with, you know, drugs, fentanyl. We've got all these, all of this nonsense going on. And it's like, you can sit on the sidelines and watch it and be complacent. And yeah, sure. You won't get, you won't get shot at as much you'll probably be okay but that or you can get in the fight and, and you can fight for something bigger than yourself and so that's what I'm trying to do man and it's like it's not something that I, I always enjoy sometimes I wish I was different man sometimes I wish God didn't make me like this give me this warrior's heart and give me uh, um, you know this desire to always be trying to um uh, fight for something bigger than myself because it does, man, it gets, gets exhausting. And it's, I don't like being shot at. I don't like, uh, I don't like people coming after me, but if my kids and your kids and the next generation are going to grow up with freedom and opportunity, I'm telling you, man, we need the next generation to step up and we need, we need continued service. That's the thing, Jason, when you have a country that was created to be of, by, and for the people, when the people who are supposed to be running the country and have the power when they check out and when they're complacent and when they no longer participate in this government and the system in this country, that's supposed to be of, by, and for them, what happens? what happens it falls apart exactly that's why i'm doing this man and uh if if guys want to go look look us up they can go to uh, my website my campaign website is eli4arizona.com we're in a pretty good spot we've got a primary uh late primary in august and then if we make it through the primary we'll go on to the general in uh in november so we'll see what happens man but uh yeah it's a, it's an exciting time but, you know, it's uh, 
it's right, right back to that question, right back to that thing. It's like, I don't know if you do this, Jason, but I, I do this all the time. Like I think about, um, I like to work from, from the end backwards. I like to think about, you know, my funeral, my legacy, who's going to show up, who's not going to show up. What are they going to say about me? Um, I think a big indicator of who you actually are. A lot of that, you know, is a lot of who you are. Is, you, you can tell who somebody is based on who their friends are, who their enemies are as well, you know? And so, um, and if, if, if you want to live a cushy, if you want to live a cushy little, uh, life in your comfort zone, then by all means go do it. And I hope that warriors are, are willing to step up the rest of your life so that you can do that. I really do. I, I don't want people to have to fight, man. I want people to be able to enjoy freedom and opportunity. But when I look at this world, and how wicked and corrupted it is when I look at mankind and what man has been willing to do to oppress and subjugate, um, you know, uh, other men. One thing I know for sure is freedom will always have to be fought for because tyranny never sleeps, man. And, and, and so it's like, all right, you know, I'll go, I'll go serve. I'll go serve again. If you guys want me to go, if you guys think I'm worthy and if not, at least I can, at least I, I can look at myself in the mirror and be like, Hey, I tried, man. Look, I'll, I'll be able to look at my kids and be like, Hey, I'm, you know, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that America, the American way of life has changed so much that it's not as good as it used to be, but at least I'll be able to tell my kids, Hey, I did try and do something about it. And, and that's, that's, that's the type of legacy I want to have where it's not just yelling at my television or like, Oh my God, I can't believe they're doing that. That's so stupid, you know, but actually trying to do something about it. Right. Eli, what is it, what's coming up next for you? What does it take for you to, to get elected? What has to happen? Um, so, and this is, this is kind of sad, but it is, it's just the, the truth of the, the matter. Um, <clears throat> right now, I think that there's only probably, there's probably only three people that can win this race and I'm one of them. So that's, we're, we're, we're playing, I think we have pretty good odds right there. Um, but a lot of what it's going to come down to is, uh, name, what we call name ID. And when somebody goes to the ballot box, you know, whether they're up in page Arizona or, St. John's, Arizona, or Payson, where, where you're, you went to high school, um, and they show up to a ballot box, are they even going to know my name, who I am, what my story is, what my background is, or why they would vote for me? And so fortunately, you can only, and especially in a district this large, you can only get around to so many, you know, so many people and talk to so many people. But a lot of it comes down to whether or not you can raise uh, the resources, the money to run the television commercials, the digital ads, uh, the mailers, all of it. And so um, we're, the, the next three months, we're going to be working our way off, continuing to hit the road, meet as many folks as we can, but also raise as many resources, is, raise as much money as we can so that we can run those ads and raise the name ID um, so that when people show up, they actually know who I am, what I'm about, and what my background is. So um, yeah, that's what, that's what will be coming up in the next like three months. We have a primary in August and then we'll see, we'll, we'll see, uh, where this thing leads, man. 
Eli, how can we stay in touch with, how can we follow you on social media and, and help you continue to, to gain that following and gain that presence? Yeah. So I think, uh, we have my, my personal social media is Eli Crane underscore CEO. And then, uh, we have some Eli for Arizona social media as well, the congressional side of stuff, but that's where people can follow me. Um, and, you know, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate what you're doing, man. I, I think it's really cool when people like yourself take this really cool new technology that we have. You can use it for a lot of, you can use it for a lot of things, but I like to see when people are using it to bless others, to educate others um, and just expose others to um, different trains of thoughts, different perspectives, especially in, in this uh, realm that you and I spent so much of our life and so much of our time and energy focused on, you know, the, the special ops community and understanding how important that is to so many young men. But I hope that the guys listening to this show uh, took some of the things that I said you know, to heart, especially about the identity stuff, man, because you'll watch, you'll see, even if you're one of the few that make it through the, the pipeline and you, you get a, you know, wear that beret or pin that bird on your chest, you, you'll see how many you'll see, you'll notice that, Oh man, I'm still the same guy. Yeah. Maybe I can do more pushups now, or maybe I have more confidence now because of what I've, what I've gone through, but my stuff still stinks. I, I'm not perfect. You know, I, I know that, um, and I hope you always remain humble too, man, because the moment, the moment humility leaves you is the moment that you're, you're in for a, you're in for an ass whooping. You really are. And, uh, you know, I hope that the young men listening to the show realize that, you know, it's, it's, it's a very cool job and, and it will help you in so many ways and it'll set you up in so many ways, but also don't put your identity in it. Eli Crane, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom, brother. Yes, sir. Thank you, man. I appreciate the opportunity. Hey, man, I get out to Tucson a couple times a year, and I know you're a busy man, but I'll be sure to uh, give you a buzz before I get out there. Yeah, please do, man. I'll buy you a coffee or a beer, or we can just hang out, man. That'd be great. Sounds good, Eli. God bless you, man. Thanks again for your time. Thanks, brother. If you're still listening to this episode, don't turn down your volume. Keep listening. We're asking for your support. If you have an iPhone, please consider giving us a simple five-star review or a written review. These help tremendously in the Apple algorithm of giving our podcast increased visibility and getting our message out to a larger audience. Thank you again for listening to the SOCOM Athlete Podcast. Send me. This is your host, Jason. We are out. Thank you. Up. Up. Down. Four. Four.